it was the fact that for a long period of time, this region was neglected by the major powers because it did not pose a security risk. And only in the in the new era of, of great power competition, but also the, the hyper-securitization that followed uh, 9-11, the, the metropolitan powers started regarding this area as, as one of uh, uh, geostrategic risk. Climate change comes, and it's coming to a lot of these places. There are going to be 300,000 people displaced. Australians are terrified about opening the door. So Australia is involved in these small nations in order to help them in the one sense, but also to keep them away. You know, China has been working with the island countries to improve the infrastructure, the mm. local education system, healthcare system, so that on one hand, local economic and infrastructure have been, you know, drastically improved and people's education level, you know, and health have been lifted. On the other hand, you know, China benefits from the improved uh, conditions. Uh, there are two things happening with the militarization of the region. One side in the geopolitical competition is actually militarizing the region in places like Manus and PNG in Micronesia. And then that particular side is actually deploying false narratives that China is militarizing the region. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to Chat Lounge. I'm Liu Kun. For the first time, France hosted the South Pacific Defense Ministers' Meeting this week in New Caledonia, an archipelago belonging to French Overseas Territory. As the South Pacific Defense Ministers' Meeting marks its 10th anniversary this year, the main functions of the mechanism have evolved from a military dialogue to include more communications in emergency response, combating climate change, etc., What has also evolved in the past decade is the presence of global powers in the South Pacific. Western powers like the United States, France, New Zealand, and Australia have all been upping their games in the region. China increased its presence in and interactions with the region too. So how should we understand the increasing geostrategic significance of the South Pacific? What are the main challenges faced by the region? What do governments and people in the region want? For these questions and more, I'm joined by Joseph Syracuse. He's inaugural dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Australia. Dr. Iyati Iyati, senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Victoria University of Wellington. Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University. Lastly, we have Professor Chen Hong, executive director of Asia Pacific Studies Center, East China Normal University. Thank you, and a big welcome to all of you for joining me.、Uh, I appreciate your participation. Now, let's start by you know taking a general look of the region first. Well, the South Pacific、uh, consists of nations and peoples residing in over twenty thousand plus islands and islets, divided between the Polynesia, Melanesia, and also Micronesia regions. Now, first up,、uh, maybe let me start with Dr. Iyati. Help us understand the region a little bit more. I mean, what are some of the you know common pillars of local economies? Well, the South Pacific has for a long time been、uh, focused on there been myriad economies.、Uh, the economies have been based on migration, uh, aid, uh, large bureaucracies, and 
by and large, this has meant uh, they haven't really developed to the potential they could, especially given that most of these countries have an abundance of natural resources, uh, particularly in Melanesia with gold, copper, nickel, forestry, etc. So economically, they've been, uh, I would say, not doing as 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 best as they could have. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of this has to do with a lack of proper infrastructure. Mm. Well, Professor Syracuse, uh, from where you stand, how do you see you know the local economies and local development? Well, they're very important. This this part of the region, this part of the world, produces seventy percent of the fish, so mm. everybody's interested in. But but more importantly than that, um, uh, Australia has both a, a has a vital security interest. Uh, Australia was traumatized in the Second World War when the Japanese came very close to taking over the South Pacific with anchorage and ships and able to block um, all passage or all trade or whatever between the United States and Australia. So they're, they're highly sensitive to the area. And, and, and the first gentleman is absolutely right. These uh, these nations have never gained any um, any traction in the word and name of economy because they've all been kind of like colonial vestiges or places uh, left out. You know, they're, they're only people are only interested in these things when they become cockpits. Mm. And with the rise of the great powers, uh, all parts of the world are starting to look very interesting to uh, the Western powers, that is, in terms of resistance. Mm. And of course, the, the enemy here the, is the containment of China. And they're also afraid these places might become ungovernable one day. That is, they might become just kind of like uh, pirates' nests and uh, places mm. for terrorism, you know, whole, whole things like that. So, and that's why this is a defense meeting coming up, defense and security. It's not about uh, uh, how, what we're going to do for climate change exactly. Climate change is only, they're only interested in it in terms of how it impacts on security and uh, defense. Mm. So it's about security from where I sit in Australia. Well, uh, Professor Chen Hong, you've traveled uh, extensively in the region. What's your take on this? Yeah, the uh, Pacific Island countries, I think, are naturally, you know, endowed with, uh, you know, geographical and weather conditions, climate conditions, you know, mm. mineral resources, sea resources, other as the other commentators have been mentioning, and other resources, and also peoples who are very well adapted to their natural surroundings. So mining, you know, agriculture, husbandry, fishery, hospitality, and tourism. These are all their pillars for their island countries. But during the times of Western colonialism, you know, those countries and their peoples have been, you know, exploited. I call it a kind of predatory, you know, colonization. You know, the Western mm. powers simply took away what they wanted and they, they, uh, there were no, you know, real plans or policies for their development of their country's economy. So when those countries become, you know, independent, they were left, you know, in such a kind of, you know, situation in which, you know, they were still, you know, you know, you know trapped in destitution, under development of the, uh, uh, the infrastructure and also people's livelihood have been, you know, really, you know, in a, in a poor condition. So I think actually the uh, local economies are actually, you know, they do have, they're endowed with favorable conditions, but actually the uh, colonization, the period of colonization have been depriving them of the, uh, you know, their the prospect and, and also promising, you know, prospects that they deserve to uh, have. Mm.
Well, let's let's take a look at、uh, you know the interactions between the region and major powers around the world. Professor Mahoney, with which major powers around the world do these island nations have frequent relations and also interactions? And、uh, you know what stand at the heart of the ties in these relations? We can always start with relations with、uh, Australia, New Zealand, U.S., etc. Yes, I think the, the the first question is what constitutes a, a major power.、Mm. Um, Indeed, <laughs> I think in, in the global in the global context, I don't think we would imagine New Zealand and Australia being major powers. But of course, these are countries that、uh, are connected、uh, fundamentally to other major powers like the United States,、um, and uh, have uh, security interest in line with with、uh, U.S. interest.、Uh, of course, the U.S. has been a major player in the South Pacific uh, uh, historically. Uh, Uh, France uh, has been、uh, French Polynesia, for example.、Uh, other、uh, islands that that are still part of uh, uh, the French nation.、Uh, our, our, our guest from Australia mentioned、uh, the Japanese presence there during、uh, World War II, and how this created some concerns in in Australia. In in the post-war period,、uh, Japan has tried to. I don't think we want to overstate it, but Japan has tried to maintain friendly relations with the South Pacific for a number of reasons:、um, um, shared interests, but also perhaps some <laughs> historical guilters or something along these lines.、Mm. And then, you know, we have another country that that I think we often forget that that is a member of this group, and that's Chile.、Mm-hmm. Um, And uh,、um, I think it's interesting that Chile has been conceived as a as as a, as a part of this.、Um, not not that Chile doesn't have uh, uh, Pacific Ocean concerns, but that、uh, Chile is, of course, rather distant. And and there's sort of a. It's interesting because I, I look at、uh, some of the literature uh, on uh, this、um, on this association and, and the past meetings.、Uh, I look at it in Spanish、uh, from publications coming out of Chile, and there's a great deal of confusion in Chile about what precisely these these meetings are for and,、mm. and why the, the organization exists. So Chile,、uh, you know, is 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 clearly involved, but it's not clear. I think to to many Chileans, why Chile is part of、uh, of this grouping.、Mm. Well, Dr. Iati,、uh, can you help us understand, you know, the role of Chile、uh, in the region, and what is your understanding of、uh, which powers、uh, are having, you know, their their major influences in the region? Uh, look, to be honest, the power that's、um, most influential in the meeting that we've just had in Numea is probably Australia,、mm-hmm. and、uh, the key concept here to understand is、uh, interoperability,、uh, and the question is who's being made interoperable with who,、mm-hmm. and so normally we talk about interoperability in terms of these military dimensions between New Zealand, Australia, and the United States. But in this particular case, where you have the United States and the UK as observers, it's about making the other countries、uh, interoperable with the lead country, which I believe in this case would be Australia. And all of this is really to, to you know, defence policy is intertwined with foreign policy, and all of this is to really、uh, deepen the integration of a lot of these Pacific countries,、uh, with not only the defence but the foreign dimensions of both Australia, New Zealand, and their Western partners. Uh, Chile is、uh, coming into the picture,、mm. but I would say at the centre of、uh, much of this discussion really is、uh, Australia.、Mm. Professor Sirkuza, how do you respond to that? Well, well, yes.、Um, <laughs> we're talking about the great powers.、Mm. When it comes to these,、um, 
these nations in and around Australian waters. Australia is the great power. It's, it's had relations with them since the end of the Second World War. It was uh, part and parcel of New PNG, uh, Papua New Guinea, until um, they declared independence. So they're, they're heavily dependent on uh, Australian bureaucracy and aid and the rest of it. And Australia is the natural attraction. You know, Australia provides. Uh, uh, it's kind of like the law, and it provides a financial assistance. And there's a lot of binding together the last 15 years in their wake of um, natural disasters. And mm-hmm. a lot of this, these connections in recent years has to do with um, natural, uh, natural disaster relief and um, uh, climate change relief. And uh, so a lot of these things are kind of like parading as this. I'm not sure. But the gentleman mentioned the word interoperability. Now, I've been in Australia... 50 years. Mm. I'm almost 80 years old. And I'll tell you what, Mm. that is a word that I think is very, very important because uh, the Australian uh, armed forces are interoperable with America and with with NATO and all the rest of it. Interoperable is shorthand for, uh, you know, you've joined the crew. It's about the same bullets, the same doctrine, the same thing. And, and of course, uh, with the AUKUS, it even leads to interchangeability. So uh, interoperability is one of those great phrases Mm. that the Australian public has never talked about, which it but it impacts every part of their lives. And when I read in the Australian uh, government um, backgrounders for th- for this meeting this for these couple of days, I mentioned that one of their mentions that one of their objects is to deepen the sense of interoperability. And that that's just kind of like some way of holding on to these other people. Mm. But you know, when climate change comes and it's coming to a lot of these places, uh, they're going to be 300,000 people displaced. The Australian government has been encouraged to take 3,000 a year, and that's just a drop in the bucket. And, of course, what our, our other guests probably have to sense a little from me is that Australians are terrified about opening the doors. Australia has been terrified of surge of strangers coming in since World War II. It was mm. the, uh, you know, the Chinese peril and all the rest of it. And they're afraid that Australia is going to be overwhelmed by, by people. And, you know, Australia is a great target. It's a, a large, rich, basically unoccupied uh, continent, and people see it as as a, as a safe haven. So Australia is involved in these small nations in order to help them in the one sense, but also to keep them away. Mm. They want to control the dialogue. Well, climate change certainly uh, is one of the themes that we're going to f- uh, focus during the talks. Uh, still on these powers, um, Professor Chen Hong, how do we understand the role of Japan in the region? Well, you know, J- Japan, as you know, some of the, the gentlemen mentioned, you know, used have the uh, historical, you know, guilt or, you know, committed war crimes, you mm-hmm. know, in the, uh, in the Pacific Islands. You know, they used, uh, they used to take these uh, uh, countries as a kind of bastion, bastion or kind of like a springboard for its uh, military operations in the area. But I think actually in the uh, uh, recent decades, you know, in particular in the recent years, you know, the, uh, Japan had been uh, part of the uh, global strategy or regional strategy mm. of the United States, the Indo-Pacific strategy, trying to instrumentalize Japan to serve as a kind of, you know, far-reaching arm, you know, for the United States in this region. Not only, uh, you know, in addition to uh, uh, Australia and also New Zealand, but also Japan, you know, for its, uh, you know, you know, resources, financial resources, technological resources. 
to uh, uh, exert its influence in that region. I think actually the uh, role that Japan has been you know, playing in that region is not merely you know, about finance, not merely about historical, but also as a part of ideological or geopolitical strategic you know, role that's uh, actually have been you know, you know, assigned, mm. or should I say, you know, uh, by, the by the United States. States. Yes. Mm. Mm. Can I? Uh, yeah, 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 Professor Mahoney, please go on. Yeah, I, I, I think it occurs to me, unless I, I missed something uh, mm. that was said earlier, that that we uh, and, and the question came to me first, and I didn't mention it myself, so I, I point the finger at myself. Uh, uh, we didn't mention China mm-hmm. as a, as one of the major powers. Uh, it was mentioned uh, that that there were concerns that. Uh, that these islands might become uh, strategically important to countries that have a hostile intent, perhaps to Australia. And I think certainly that rhetoric has uh, driven some public opinion as well as policymaking in uh, Australia. And certainly we've seen uh, conservative uh, security think tanks in the United States pondering whether or not China could um, uh, at some point build a military base within striking distance of Australia or that could uh, interrupt uh, supply lanes or shipping lanes. In fact, all the analyses that I've seen from Washington think tanks is that that's extremely unlikely, would in fact be very, very difficult for China to achieve. China, for its own purpose, has been very clear that it has no interest in that type of uh, competition or that type of base. I think this is clearly uh, justified in terms of a pragmatic approach. But but it's also sort of this through foreign policy principles. But this is this is the specter that, mm. uh, to some extent, has provoked a lot of the big power competition that we've seen accelerating in the region. You know, th- this this meeting goes back to 2013, but uh, we we've seen just in this past year a huge rush of uh, major leaders, including uh, India, which we didn't mention. Uh, much more interested in, in the region as well. The chat lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Still, the question I I would ask is, um, we talk about these powers, but what do people and governments in the region want? Uh, Dr. Iati, I mean, what do they really want? I mean, in terms of uh, priorities uh, for developing the economies and, you know, building better life for its people? Uh, look, you're, you're you're heading in the, exactly the right direction. Um, from the Pacific, uh, they see uh, their priorities as being with climate change, uh, human security, development. Um, many of these countries are struggling just to get clean water throughout the clean water infrastructure um, and helping their people out of poverty. So th- those are their main concerns. But what you have overlaying this, uh, the geopolitical concerns of the metropolitan powers, uh, such as Australia, New Zealand, um, the partners in the Blue Pacific, if you will, mm-hmm. who just treat this region as a geopolitical region for uh, deploying their uh, strategies like the st- policy of strategic denial, for example. And so there's a mismatch between the priorities of the Pacific and the priorities of the metropolitan powers that are on the Pacific Rim, if you will. Mm. Um, but at the end of the day, um, I, I think China uh, coming in as a, as a relatively late player into the game uh, has, I think, matched uh, what their priorities are much better with the Pacific priorities. And hence why we're seeing a lot more gravitational pull towards China from the Pacific Island countries. And and obviously this has um, increased uh, fears among Western countries that they are losing influence in this region, and uh, rightly so. 
hence why you see the formation of development of different policies around the 2018s with the Pacific Reset from New Zealand, the step up from Australia, mm. uh, the pledge from uh, United States, etc. So there, there's a real mismatch between Pacific Island uh, priorities and their traditional donors' priorities. Mm. Dr. Ianti, uh, can you explain more as to how China coming in has changed or more, you know, met with the local needs? I mean, what is China providing that uh, for this region uh, that really match their need? Well, the first thing China provided was a different option, an alternative to what was traditionally a Western hold over the region. Um, mm-hmm. There was a time uh, post-Cold War uh, when Western countries uh, found they had no more, uh, the Pacific Island countries really had uh, not a lot of options to go to apart from them. And so they were able to exercise a little bit more influence. And you see this with the sort of neoliberal uh, programs that they try to implement in the region. Uh, but with China coming in, they gave them an alternative, uh, both in terms of development, but interestingly also uh, politically, because these countries were then able to um, assert an autonomy that they previously hadn't, had not experienced, mm-hmm. uh, a sort of more sovereign, independent foreign policy. So in that respect, China offered them an alternative. But the other thing that China has been very good at uh, is is um, looking at the infrastructure side of development, which is really what these countries have needed for decades. Mm. As I mentioned earlier, you have some of the richest natural resources in this region, but most of the infrastructure was really geared around serving uh, multinational corporations that uh, exploited a lot of these countries. Right. And so now China comes in with um, an infrastructure-based development program, and these countries are seeing the potential and interestingly, now you have the traditional donors like Australia kick in with some of their infrastructure policies. I think it was around 2018 for Australia mm. to try and match China when really they had decades to do it. Um, but uh, they were never prompted to do so because of a lack of com- uh, a genuine competitor and a strong competitor like China is. Mm. In the past few years, we constantly hear from uh, you know leaders in the region, uh, national and also local, talking about the Pacific Way. Now, I, I want to get a, uh, an understanding from uh, Professor Sukhuz. Uh, what do they mean by the Pacific Way? Well, I mean, the Pacific Way, as I understand it, mm. is um, uh, they're looking for some um, political, uh, some, some space to maneuver between uh, the, usually the Western domination of these places and the new opportunities. Uh, it, it's quite correct. The, uh, uh, the West has only uh, has a renewed interest in this area after the the Belt and Road came into a few of these places. And, you know, the, and so, you know, the, the Pacific Way is sort of the, the independent way. Mm. But, you know, when your islands are sinking, when your, your soft loans or your infrastructure uh, possibilities or capabilities are shrinking, uh, it's a little hard to strike out in an independent fashion. But they are doing it. So you know, this, this, this renewed interest in the area only comes with the... Um, uh, in in the wake of or in the train of um, uh, Chinese loans, and you know, it's, um, the United States responded to some of these instances by creating embassies in these small South Pacific nations. I mean, right. I can tell you, I mean, the United States has been closing embassies all over the world, and to open an embassy with a country of maybe twenty six thousand people is ridiculous to me. But they want to reestablish their uh, their mm-hmm. influence in the region. So the Pacific Way is they're they're looking for an independent way. Mm. Uh, that is the you got to consider the parties there. I say the Pacific Way is kind of like the third way between um, 
what the new things that are hitting them and the old way of dealing with things and they they're just they're just trying to breathe free air they、mm. want to be independent right now professor chen hong how do you understand the pacific way yes the pacific way i think there's also cultural aspect、mm-hmm. in this because the pacific country they do have、uh, a kind of uh, uniform uh, outlook You know of the、mm. world, and、uh, they believe actually the Pacific people, in particular the uh, uh, Polynesian, you know, Melanesian, you know, and Micronesian people. These are actually、uh, members of a big family,、mm-hmm. and so you know there's a kind of you know intrinsic link between them and also the environment. That is why climate change is actually really causing such a kind of you know alarm among the people over there because、uh, this is really a kind of existential. Crisis to threaten their way of life. It's a it's a way of life. It's a way of looking at the world also, and also each other. And also there's a kind of partnership. So in other words, you know, these people to regard themselves as a kind of you know a coalition, a coalescing, you know, you know, you know, members of a big family, you know, and、uh, that empowers them to do things together with a uniform, you know,、uh, you know, yeah, you know. Uh, targets and so I agree with、uh, Professor Sarkusa that actually this is really something that、uh, you know makes people to adhere to their sense of independence because we are independent from others.、Mm. You've been listening to Chat Lunch on CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. We're going to a short break. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion on the South Pacific. Of CGTN Radio's most popular programs, World Today provides listeners with a strong mix of international news and business. It delivers in-depth analysis of current affairs and one-on-one interviews, bringing you the stories behind the news—not just what's happening, but why. Hello, I am Dr. Digby James Wren, a political analyst and international relations scholar specializing in China area studies. World Today offers unmatched in-depth perspectives on China's politics, economics, business, technology, and society. World Today's team of reporters and contributors provides valuable information from all of the world's major economies. I hope you can join me on World Today for the very best insights and news from China on China and help to build a better understanding of China's role in the world today. Welcome back. This is Chat Lunch on CGTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Continue with our discussion. Well, the South Pacific Defense Ministers' meeting was actually initially proposed by the Australian government at the 2012 Shangri-La Dialogue. That's a major defense forum、uh, hosted by Singapore.、Um, Australia's then Minister of Defense, uh, Stephen uh, Smith, talked about the establishment of such a dialogue. And cooperation framework among defense authorities and military forces in the South Pacific.、Uh, the inaugural meeting was held by Tonga、uh, in 2013. Now, Professor Mahoney, what was the original mission of the mechanism, in your understanding? One of the interesting things is that a lot of these countries 
uh, don't have uh, standing armies. They don't have militaries. They, uh, I think a couple of them do, but for the most part, they have local auxiliaries or, or militias or, or police forces. And so there's, there was also this other concern, you know, we, we had in, in the 2000s uh, following uh, 9-11, we had uh, the growing concern of Islamic terrorism in uh, Indonesia, but also uh, Malaysia and Thailand and, and the Philippines. And I think there was some concern that uh, at least in, in the <laughs> in the old uh, uh, war on terror mindset that that um, uh, that that uh, the South Pacific might become um, a target for that type of, of development. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was mentioned previously, the, the, the general concern about uh, piracy. This was something that was increasing as well uh, back uh, in the in that period of time. Uh, it's still a concern in, in some parts of uh, Southeast Asia. But I think one of the things that, that, uh, that to go back to a theme that we've, that we've hit on several times is that um, it, it was the fact that, that uh, for a long period of time, uh, this region was neglected uh, by the major powers because um, it, it was not really uh, a security, uh, it did not pose a security risk. And only in the in the new era of, of, of great power competition, but also the the hyper securitization that followed uh, uh, 9/11, um, these uh, as it was called the, the metropolitan powers started regarding this area as as one of uh, uh, geostrategic risk. There was never really any concerted effort to deal with the lack of development because in, in, in large measure. Uh, you know, there's really only one country in the world at this point that's able to project that type of infrastructure development, and that's China. And so when China came in, uh, that was that was a great boon, as, as has been noted. But as President Xi Jinping has made uh, clear uh, with, with uh, his discussion of the Global Security Initiative, uh, development and security go hand in hand. So this, this I think, rush to, to create uh, some sort of military association to deal with possible threats Mm-hmm. Is is a reactionary uh, response. Now, there's, well, you know, the, we we don't have development, and we've neglected these areas, and so they're falling apart, and they've got entrenched poverty, and all of these uh, make them vulnerable to to some sort of crisis. Mm-hmm. In addition to you know climate change, which uh, is, is being driven by uh, other countries around the world. Uh, so then the response is okay. Well, maybe what we need to do is build uh, a better military capacity in the region. And and uh, conversely, you know, China said okay, maybe what we should do is. Uh, develop the region, and First. it is true mm-hmm. that China has has strategic not not strategic interest in the in the military sense, but but uh, in the, in the developmental sense. And there was there is this opening for uh, win win projects mm-hmm. in uh, the South Pacific. It's not just about aid or or, or largesse, but uh, uh, China can do something that uh, aligns with Chinese interest, but also local interest, and uh, that leads. Um, Mm. unfortunately, to the to the, the mad rush that we've seen today. The competition, indeed. Uh, let me get some perspective from uh, Dr. Iati. How do you understand the original mission of the mechanism and the background uh, against which it was set up? It was really just to establish closer and deeper relations between the different uh, countries in the region that have military forces. At the time, I, I, I think there was a, an, a sense that uh, this would be useful in the future for geostrategic interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's obviously become the geostrategic interests have, have heightened since then. And obviously this 
meeting has become more important. But if I could just go back to your question about the Pacific Way, because I just would like to supplement what was said earlier and tie yes. it back to the current geopolitical events you've just seen over the past year. Uh, the Pacific Way was first coined by uh, Fijian Prime Minister Sir Ratu Kamasesimara to really articulate what it meant to be Pacific in terms of the international relations of the Pacific. Uh, it was during the time of the first Fijian coups. And there were two opposing views about what the region would do. And one would be to preserve the principle of non-interference in Fiji. Mm. And the other view was to uh, have a united regional approach to the coups of Fiji. And I mention that because this has always been uh, two principles that have been in tension with each other all the way till now, uh, whether to respect a sovereign uh, Pacific Island country's um, right to operate and consult with other countries as they will. Mm. or whether there should be a regional response acting in unity. Mm. It's important to notice, you know, debates are still going on on this issue, on the Pacific way in the region. Still back to the South Pacific Defense Minister's meeting, Professor Chen Hong, over the past decade, what have been the major achievements uh, of uh, this meeting? And uh, has the function of the meeting changed over the past decade? Oh. Well, one of the most significant achievements of the uh, SPDMM is the uh, Pavoy Endeavour Framework, which was proposed in uh, 2013 and ratified in uh, 2015. Mm. The aim uh, is to enhance you know, interoperability among partners in maritime security and also the header uh, operations HD, uh, HADR, you know, which means the uh, humanitarian assistance and uh, disaster relief operations. You know, there have been, you know, a number of joint exercises among the countries, among the South Pacific countries, you know, island countries. But one thing noticeable is that they are separate from other major, you know, military exercises in the region, such as, you know, Malaba, which was, uh, is led and coordinated by Australia. The second is that the main purpose of those uh, exercises and also operations, you know, has been, you know, disaster relief mm. and other humanitarian support and salvaging, you know, operations. So if we look back over the past 10 years, we can list a number of operations that played, you know, important roles you know, in providing support and also relief, you know, under that framework during natural disasters and emergencies, such as, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, the volcanic eruption in Tonga in January 2022. But one thing I think we need to be vigilant of is that some forces, some elements, have been trying to make use uh, of this uh, meeting, the uh, mm. uh, SPDMM, and framework under it for geopolitical strategic goals. You know, a U.S.-based uh, think tank called, you know, uh, Center for, uh, you know, Naval Analysis mm. has been hyping up the, the alleged uh, competition or rivalry between, you know, China, you know, and the United States, asserting that the uh, SPDMM should be used to counter or to offset China's influence in the regions. Obviously, that is the uh, most uh, pre preposterous assertion because it tries to turn a mechanism that effectively sources from the uh, defense uh, forces to serve humanitarian and peaceful objectives into a geopolitical instrument or even weapon, which is simply against its uh, original mission. Mm, indeed. Now, this year, France is hosting uh, the meeting. It is the first time that France is hosting this. Professor Syracuse, what are France's core interests in the region and how significant that France is, you know, convening the meeting uh, this year? And what have um, been the French contributions to the region? France 
owns New Caledonia. They took it over in 1853 and they ain't giving it back. Though there are many people in New Caledonia who would like to go the independent way. And and Francis showed its um, uh, its contempt for the region by uh, uh, its nuclear testing at once upon a time in, in the region. The United States the same way when they nuclear they did all these hundreds of nuclear tests in, the, in Micronesia. So in a sense, the United States and the um, and France are trying to slough off this historical reputation. But France is interested today in New Caledonia because it, it allows Macron and uh, European and France to play a role in the larger Indo-Pacific. They're looking for a handle. They're looking for some legitimacy. And they say, well, um, we're not just sticking our noses in Micronesia. We, we have territory there. We have long long traditions. All those people in New Caledonia are, are French citizens. They can vote in French elections. They can go live in France tomorrow if they wanted to, though I couldn't imagine why. So in, in many ways, um, France has revitalized its interests in New Caledonia as a way of legitimizing its um, its place in the Indo-Chinese mm. debates and mm. about where, where 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 they fit in. I mean, France is not interested in in NATO extending itself to places like Japan, but it's very concerned in playing an Indo-Pacific role, as Macron has made very clear with other people, and even when he opposed the uh, the AUKUS arrangement because they were going to buy French submarines at one place. So, uh, New Caledonia mm. is important to the French. It gives them a a staging area. It gives them a place to be in Indochina to say, look, they have a role here. They have a historical role. They have a continuing historical role because of uh, all their their many years there. So um, it's very convenient. Mm. Otherwise, uh, you know, if there weren't uh, renewed competition in the Indo-Pacific area, I don't think the French would be interested. They have uh, other and better things to do. So I think it gives them a great deal of legitimacy. Now, the United States and Britain, a few of the others, uh, they're not actually technically members, but they're on the sidelines. Mm. They're observers, which is about the same same kind of thing. So you've got some great powers, some middle powers, and some small powers. And it's all about the agitation we've seen around the Indo-Pacific. I've heard now for the last 10 years that that's going to be the next theater of action. Mm. And uh, I don't believe China's picking a fight in the area. I think that when you uh, try to trade and, and, and work in development areas, that you're just doing what nations do. China is a great uh, commercial nation now, so it's just going out to these areas. So um, I think these smaller nations, these island nations, have got uh, uh, sort of caught up in the great middle power debate about what happens next in Indochina. That's not their fault. Mm. Uh, and so I think they got they got swept along. But they shouldn't be, right? Well, uh, no, they should. Mm, no, they should be. Mm. This, this happens in the Caribbean too. We got the same actual debate mm. with mm. all the same players in the Caribbean, uh, vis-a-vis the, uh, uh, the the soft loans from China to the Caribbean nations. Same political debate, same independence debate, the Caribbean way of doing things. So you know, this is not new. This is sort of um, mm. a pathological response of great middle powers. To renewing their um, mm. uh, their competition in certain areas, and this mm. is uh, Micronesia or this part of the South Pacific is the classic cockpit mm. for uh, great great power and middle power competition. Australia is not just uh, uh, a lonely figure here because it is tied up with the United States, but it's been a has a predominant role to play in these these nations too. So these 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 are 
troublesome times, dangerous times for the uh, South Pacific. They're they're involved in some very uh, large games, and um, they have to be very careful. Mm. French President Emmanuel Macron visited the region in July, and now they're hosting the meeting. Uh, and the French Defense Minister said, "Well, France is a Pacific nation." Now, still specifically, Dr. Yati. In your observation, what have been the French contributions to the region? Well, you cannot take away the、uh, development that the French have actually made in places like New Caledonia. If you've、mm. been there, you'd you'd see that it's more in terms of infrastructure. It's one of the more developed.、Um, well, it's a territory, one of the more developed、uh, territory countries in the region.、Mm. Um, the French have certainly put in a lot into their budget for not only. In New Caledonia, but also French Polynesia,、uh, Wallace and Fortuna. So they've made、um, contributions in that sense. But as the speaker previously said,、uh, the Indo-Pacific has made this region even more important to France. And for, from a French perspective, as you see now, New Caledonia agitating for greater independence. I think this has brought France more to the table than not only trying to、um, keep New Caledonia as a territory. Uh, but also try to use New Caledonia as a a tool to become more involved in regionalism. Hence, if you look at the Pacific Islands Forum, it has a very interesting mix of not only independent countries, but you see French territories who are also now members of it.、Mm-hmm. And so France has this sort of two two pronged approach to the region:、uh, strengthening its territorial presence, its presence in the territories, but also using these territories. To strengthen its hand in regionalism, in particular the Pacific Islands Forum, and we also shouldn't forget that、uh, France is also a member of the oldest regional institution, which is the now called the Pacific Community.、Right. And so France has、um, its hand in a number of different areas. I think it's certainly taking the Pacific much more seriously now than it was, say, ten years ago, and this is largely just to do with the geostrategic, geopolitical competition that is taking place. Mm. On the other hand, you you do have to give France、uh, some credit for not joining the Western Alliance、uh, as it, as it really stands right now, for it, which is kind of articulated around the partners in the Blue Pacific, and that's the United States,、um, UK, Japan, Australia, and New Zealand. France has kind of stayed a little bit away from that sort of Western Alliance circle,、mm. and it's really trying to navigate its way to see where it can position itself within the new geo. Politics of the Indo-Pacific.、Mm, indeed, it would be interesting to see, you know, what specific actions and in what areas France will make its efforts. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Let's take a look at China because it seems to me that, from all of your observations and analysis,、uh, these Western powers have only stepped up their efforts because China has done so. Well, Chinese President Xi Jinping visited the region twice, which is remarkable.、Uh, that was in 2014 and 2018. China started initiating official dialogues with countries in the region back in 2005, when China proposed the idea of China Pacific Island Countries Economic Development and Cooperation Forum. The first ministerial meeting of such a forum was held in Fiji in 2006.、Uh, Professor Mahoney, in your observation, what have been the main areas in which China collaborates intensively with、uh, the region? Well, I think we've we've noted、uh, some of them already.、Mm. Um, there clearly were、uh, there were clearly clearly the the alignment in 
shared uh, goals and objectives. Uh, China, on the one hand, has has presented itself, uh, especially in the last uh, 10 years, uh, uh, with the uh, the Belt Road Initiative mm-hmm. as as being a champion of uh, the global South, of uh, increasingly uh, trying to position position itself as a champion of um, uh, countries uh, vulnerable to climate change. Certainly, um, we have seen uh, China having a unique capacity to go down and and help these countries to deli- uh, uh, develop. Uh, that that uh, really no other country has has either the capacity or the interest at this point to do. So these and, and China sees that as, as as I've said already as a win win. The same thing we see um, uh, with uh, Chinese companies like uh, Huawei. Uh, mm. Uh, you know, one of these 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 um, uh, countries are, are far flung. Uh, they need infrastructure. They also need communications. Uh, Huawei has developed um, products that um, can run on uh, renewable energy that are bringing uh, the fifth industrial revolution to some of these regions. And so, all of these things are 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 but at price points that that local um, uh, communities can afford. Uh, along with uh, affordable Chinese uh, cell devices or, or, or um, other other uh, devices, smart devices. So all of these represent um, uh, cost-effective, but also uh, investment, uh, responsible investment opportunities for, for both sides that are um, creating opportunities for co-development. When I, when I was doing research, I saw uh, actually um, China and uh, the South Pacific have already had extensive cooperation in terms of uh, uh, infrastructure, as Dr. Yati had mentioned earlier, as well as in healthcare. Uh, China sends doctors to the region, and also the the two have um, trade and economic interests and collaboration. Professor Chen Hong, how how does China view you know the South Pacific, its foreign policy in the region? What are the priorities of China? Well, as we were saying, that the Pacific countries are you know naturally endowed with resources, favorable conditions. China has got you know you know investment projects related to mines, you know, agriculture and husbandry farms, you know, fisheries and so on. So in order to create, you know, favorable conditions to ensure the success of the uh, business, you know, initiatives, you know, China has been working with the island countries to improve the, uh, as we said, you know, uh, you know, their infrastructure, their, their business management mechanism, you know, mm. local education system, healthcare system, so that on one hand, local economic and infrastructure have been, you know, drastically improved and people's education level, you know, and health have been lifted. On the other hand, you know, China benefits from the improved uh, conditions, the improved business environment, so that China's cooperation with the uh, island countries can be, you know, better conducted. So that is why, you know, we call that, you know, also Professor Moni was calling it a win-win outcome. You know, that is why the uh, island countries have been welcoming China's cooperation with them. You know, there's no political or any kind of strings attached to their Chinese, you know, aid programs or business mm-hmm. initiative. You know, as President Xi Jinping had, has been, you know, reiterating, you know, China adopts this uh, full, 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 you know, pr- respects as their guiding principles in cooperating with the South Pacific countries. And that is, in fact, 
the key to their success. Mm, right. Well, as all of you have mentioned, uh, major or middle powers around the world have recently stepped up their efforts in the region. Uh, Washington unveiled its first Pacific Partnership strategy and also started the U.S. Pacific Islands Forum Summit in 2022. U.S. also announced embassy openings in the region. Australia announced Pacific Step Up which is its own strategy in 2017. New Zealand had Pacific Reset in 2018, etc. UK has something of its own. I understand, you know, countries and national governments are really different from each other and their strategies uh, may different, you know, in details and also maybe in direction too. But uh, talking specifically about New Zealand, Dr. Yati, what is New Zealand's appeal in the region and how does it differ, you know, from its neighbor Australia, for example? Well, New Zealand has a deep cultural, uh, ethnic um, connections with the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to look at the Polynesian connections between places like Samoa, Tonga, etc. and the indigenous people of New Zealand. So New Zealand does have that tie and there's an understanding among the uh, traditional donors that uh, of all of them, New Zealand has uh, the closest understanding of the region and has been a little bit more moderate in their engagement with the region as opposed to the others. So Australia, for example, is uh, seen as a little bit uh, more connected to the United States, and rightly so. Mm. Um, but New Zealand is uh, often seen as more part of the region. And uh, in, in saying that, uh, New Zealand has certainly kind of pulled um, more to towards the Anglo-American alliance as of uh, recently uh, given, for example, and this is noted in uh, the national security strategy that came out a few months ago. Mm. Um, So New Zealand does have those traditional connections. It does play itself up as a Polynesian country, as a Pacific country. And for a long time, this was um, accepted. But I think more and more as they pull towards the Anglo-American side, there are questions being asked as to the extent to which they really fit in the Pacific and they whether really they really are part of the Pacific family. Mm-hmm. But up till now, I think you'll find most of the traditional donors will still come to New Zealand to seek advice about how to engage the region. But I think most of them are starting to wake up to the fact that uh, New Zealand may not be the best option. Uh, and the best option may be just to go directly to Pacific Island countries themselves. Mm. I wish we had more time, uh, but uh, we are running toward the end of the show. I think uh, with our discussion today, it will be an undoubted conclusion that uh, the recommitted interest in the region uh, by these powers will somehow to a degree invite risk of uh, militarization of the region. Now, my question is briefly to every one of you, what should be done? Uh, let me start with Professor Syracuse. I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, the idea is to uh, avoid the, uh, the optics or the appearance that the, uh, uh, the major approaches to these island, uh, these island nations is military. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a big mistake. I think it should be anything but that. And, uh, I'd like to, I mean, remind people that is uh, only a couple of weeks ago, President Xi uh, told the Americans in San Francisco, the earth is big enough for both sides to succeed at whatever they're doing. Mm-hmm. I think the South Pacific's big enough for, uh, for both sides to succeed in terms commercially and all the rest of it. But to over-militarize the region, to turn it into a military cockpit is uh, not a good idea. And, and frankly, it would not have a good end. Mm. Professor Mahoney, briefly. 
You know, uh, several years ago, there was uh, a, a quote attributed to a famous Chinese novelist, and he later denied the quote because it provoked some backlash, and it had to do with uh, uh, Japan and China's uh, ships circling uh, the Daoyu Highlands mm. furiously, and, and, and the quote was, uh, uh, he felt sorry for the fish. Um, <laughs> I think that that's the, um, I think that's sort of the right attitude here. Um, if we look at uh, if, if these Western powers uh, bring militarization to the region, it will be much ado about nothing. I mean, it will certainly it will subvert uh, possibly uh, Chinese influence in the region and certainly development. And that would be uh, dangerous. And then, of course, these militaries might be needed to, to quell and rest and, and to help people who are drowning from climate change. But let's face it, the, the, the problem of militarization and flashpoints are much greater in the Taiwan Strait and in and, and, and Southeast Asia and other parts of the world. Well, Professor Chen? Well, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong for those countries or any country to commit interest in this region. But if the aim or target is to contain China, to suppress, ostracize or exclude China's presence and China's interest in this region, there would be you know, unwarranted risks, as you said. You know, the uh, United States is already militarizing their area, you know, signing agreements for military cooperation with some island countries. In some cases, some clauses in the uh, in those agreements simply infringe upon the uh, sovereignty of the uh, island countries. So the United States is also, you know, building, you know, upgrading naval bases in the islands. As a matter of fact, the island countries are being instrumentalized or even, you know, weaponized by the United States to serve its own hegemonic strategy. So I think for countries in their region, the most important consideration should be, you know, uh, the country's own national interests. So I do think political leaders in the South Pacific have their wisdom and, you know, judiciousness, you know, in making decisions and policies to safeguard their own sovereignty and national security. Dr. Yati. Uh, there are two things happening with the militarization of the region. One side in the geopolitical competition is actually militarizing the region in places like Manus and PNG in Micronesia. And then that particular side is actually deploying false narratives that China is militarizing the region. Both those things will end very badly for the Pacific, which does not want militarization of this region. Mm, indeed. That concludes our discussion today. Again, I want to thank our guests. They are Joseph Syracuse, he is inaugural dean of Global Futures at Curtin University in Australia, Dr. Iati Iati, senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Victoria University of Wellington, Joseph Mahoney, professor of politics and international relations at East China Normal University, also Professor Chen Hong, executive director of Asia Pacific Studies Center, East China Normal University in Shanghai. You've been listening to chat lunch on CDTN Radio. I'm Liu Kun in Beijing. Thank you for joining us. See you next time.
The world is about to change. Warriors, assassins, fair maidens, court officials, and even emperors and heavenly immortals are nothing but pawns on a giant chessboard. Xu Fengnan, a playboy of national notoriety and heir to the empire's second most powerful man, finds himself embroiled in the depths of unbeatable game. CGTN Radio invites you to immerse in a world brimming with heroism and follow a young man's odyssey in the audio drama series, The Sword Strider Saga. Now available on radio.cgtn.com and all the major podcast platforms. When courage meets wisdom, the sword scribes an immortal legend.